And as you're having a seat, let's just pr- let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you so much for the finished work of Jesus, your son. We sit in that now. Holy Spirit, would you, by your word, connect us to the face of Jesus? Connect us to the finished, full work of Jesus, the Son, outside of us, objective, finished. So, Lord, even if we've had a bad week, even if we come in here feeling assaulted with enemies, hungry, thirsty, not very justified, we know that even faith as small as a mustard seed is sufficient to deliver all of your promises to us. And would it be your kindness, Lord, not finger-wagging or shame or looks of disdain, but kindness and mercy that leads us to repent. If it is finished in Christ, then we want to grow, do surgery on our hearts. We want to look more like you, Jesus, for one another in this church, for our families, our kids, our friends, our parents, our spouses, and for the people in Santa Fe you've called us to love. And do that now through the preaching of the good news of your gospel in Exodus 17. Amen. Well, I love that song we sang. It's one of my favorites. Before the throne of God. Before the throne of God. And I just want to read a few of the lyrics. I have a strong and perfect plea because I have done so well this week that how could God not love me? I am special. Oh, wait, that's not how it goes. (laughs) No. Lord, look at how good I am. I cleaned my car. I got, I got the oil change in the wife's car. I did a dish. No, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Now Jesus is seated like, like no high priest before him, constantly standing, constantly working, constantly sacrificing. He's taken his seat at the right hand of God. And your name is graven on his hands. Your name, you. Not future you. Not your best you now, living your best life on your best day. Your name, you are his son. You are his daughter. And so we know that while in heaven he stands, even if we thirst, even as we quarrel and test God and grumble, even as our enemies descend upon us, Amalek, and all of our foes, and they are too much for us, and we are helpless and hopeless. No tongue, no word of accusation, no Satan, no Satan, no accuser, no condemnation can bid you thence depart. It's worth repeating, no tongue can bid me thence depart. That's Exodus 17. And in part, I love Exodus 17 because God is... God is a winner. He's the one who will win and fight our battles for us. And we love winners, don't we? Did any of you guys watch the Olympics? A little bit, a couple snippets. It was so fun. I mean, we watched it with our girls and the opening ceremonies. And, you know, of course, they're they're children of the new millennium. So, you know, where's our team? Where's that? You had to wait. You had to wait a long time for the U.S. to come in the opening ceremonies. And when they came, it was beautiful. It was almost a little picture of heaven. You know, people like me, super in shape, good looking. Uh, you know, no, no. Like, they're different than daddy. Yes, that's true, dear. But they did come out very, you know, just diverse. I love that about the U.S. team. 
And Aria, unprovoked, my 10-year-old, just starts going, USA, USA. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you feel a little bit of pride in the Olympics. And you can just imagine that uh, in other countries around the world, they're in front of the TV. And when their team came out, even some of those teams were just two or three people. And there was chanting going on in the homeland. We love the winners. And I also love about the Olympics, the weird sports. I mean, there's some really weird sports that you can win a gold medal for. I especially love the sports where you can look like a full-on 40-year-old guy with a dad bod and still get a gold medal. There's a handful of those. Praise the Lord. But the one thing I find myself doing, you know, not exactly chanting USA, but I'm always checking the medal count. You check the medal count as the week goes on? Who's winning? You know, who's, who's got the most medals? Are we, you know, are we beating uh, some of those other countries? You know, I, I'm always looking at, at England, because they're the most humble of all people in the West, right? Uh, I'm always looking at, at the Russian Olympic Committee, quote, unquote. So I guess rules are made to be broken. You know, and you're just kind of keeping an eye on where are we. And then at the end of the Olympics, when you realize that, you know, at least for now, the U.S. not only won in quantity of medals, but at the very end, we eat that one more gold than the next country behind us. I'm just kind of sitting there on my couch, bag of potato chips, three gummy bears on my chest, and my big gulp going, I did it. We won. My team won, you know. It was me. I prayed for you. No. Now look, we like winners. We like winners. We like to win. We like to be around winners. We like to be known as those who are of the winners. And then we get to the Bible. And then we get to Israel and you and me when we're alone, when the hard days come, when we're thirsty, when the enemies descend. And folks, I hate to tell you, but here we are again with the Israelites, and they're losers. And there's something about God when you are wandering in your wilderness, when you are struggling, when you can't see the future, when your thirst cannot be quenched, when you feel assailed and assaulted, that God specializes in glorifying His name and his power, and his ability to do it by lifting up and exalting the losers. Here we are back again with God's rescued children, and they're just back at the same old shenanigans. When will they ever learn? And I saw this quote that made me think about Israel and you and me this week. It came from a little list of quotes that was affectionately entitled, Old Guy Humor. Old Guy Humor. And I'm about to be 40, so I'm in the club now. When you're dead, you don't know that you're dead. The pain is only felt by others. The same thing is true when you're stupid. <laughs> so, I mean, here's Israel. For goodness sake, people, this is not rocket science. Two months ago, maybe three months ago, they saw the hand of God come down and do one of the greatest miracles in history. But isn't it amazing how when the, the things that we put around us to control and protect and make sure everything in life is nice and manicured and just how we want it, when those things are stripped away, when we become vulnerable and exposed, man, do we quickly descend from Exodus 15, singing and rejoicing in God is great, right into Exodus 16, where they're complaining against God. They're in the wilderness. They're not sure. They're full of fear. Their faith is struggling. They're just like us. And if only they could see, they're almost there. You see, Rephidim, 
where they've camped. It's the very last place before Sinai. They're almost at the mountain of God where he will graciously give them a revelation of his character, his law. This is how you should live now that you've been saved. But yet even standing on the cusp of once again meeting with God and seeing his power, they're failing. They're not winning. And so 17, Exodus 17, we have these two stories, these two instances of their need, of their exposure, of their utter dependence through the means of water, thirst, and the warring of their enemies. Now, don't forget as we go, 17 chapters in now, that the whole book of Exodus can be boiled down to two words, deliver and dwell. God's plan for his people, his children, you, is to deliver, to rescue, and then to dwell with them, to have relationship with them. And God has saved Israel and you and told you, I'm going to do it. Yeah, yeah, but Lord, I don't know if you turned on the news today. Yeah, I did. I am the news. Thanks for playing. Yeah, Lord, but my boss, my wife, my husband, my kids, my parents. Yeah, Lord, but. It's not rocket science. God says, I have rescued you, and I'm going to take you in the wilderness, and I'm going to provide everything you need. Not to, you know, not to push you down so that when the time comes, I can shame you into obedience, but I want to be in relationship with you. I want you sinful people to be redeemed and to know me and for me to know you. And the only way to have any kind of healthy relationship is trust. It's to trust that God will do it. Oh man, but man's memory is short. Our memory is so short, isn't it? We know that the Lord has been faithful to us. We know that the Lord has delivered. We know that he's been good. And our memory is short time and time again. In the case of Israel, we learn often that trusting God becomes harder with hunger. When our back's against the wall, all the big Christian words that we know, all the Bible studies we've gone to, all the worship services, that's where the rubber hits the road. And so it shouldn't surprise us, but it should at least shock us a bit that Israel says these words to Moses. Is God among us or not? Have you ever felt that way? In your life? In your challenges? In your wilderness? In your thirst? In your enemies? Is God among us or not? And I just read that this week and went, wow, the things we say, the things we say to God, whether verbally or we just think them or feel them, it's pretty amazing. It begs a few questions for us in 2021. The first is this, will we continue to test the faithful one? Even though God is faithful time and time again, will we continue to test him again? And perhaps a more profound question, because it gets deeper into the question of when we do that, because the answer is yes, spoiler alert, will he still love us? Or do you sit there and feel like, he's almost done with me? <laughs> like, Pastor Greg, if you only knew my doubts, my questions, my struggles, my fears, the things I think, my lack of discipline, my lack of prayer, all my frustrations. What then? Will he still be there? Will he still love me? Because as easy it is, as it is to caricature the Israelites with this you know, bold question, is God among us or not? The fact is that for them in this moment, life was really heavy. 
And it is for us often as well. Thirst, war, and in the church in August in 2021, so many potential pitfalls and places to disunify, to fight each other, and to have infighting and bickering and grumbling and testing and quarreling. I mean, I I genuinely thought in June, you know, we're going to be past all of that. And we're never going to argue again about people's medical decisions or if they put something on their face. We're going to love one another. We're going to respect each other. We're going to have freedom of conscience. We're going to be okay with that. We're going to love our neighbor as ourselves and allow people to make their decision and not look down and not judge as I'm so prone to do. Yeah, right. And so here are the Jews in Exodus 17, and here are we. We're no different. We are no different. See, the problem is we know God's word. We know his promises. We, we know the sentences, the propositions. We know what the Bible says, but we struggle to live out that belief. We struggle to really trust that God will quench our thirst and win our battles. And so we're constantly returning to taking matters into our own hands. The good news for us in this text and the whole Bible, the whole story of Exodus all the way up to Revelation is that God knows that. He knows you are dust. And so even as we continue walking with Israel in Exodus, we never get to move past Exodus 4.22. I think it's probably one of my favorite verses in the whole book where God sends Moses to Pharaoh and he says, deliver this message to Pharaoh, Moses. Israel is my son. My people, they're not just some random folks that I've haphazardly decided to save so I can, you know, set an example for the rest of the world. These aren't just my my slaves. These aren't people that I, you know, you need to finish up some of what God started so I saved Israel. These are my kids, my sons and my daughters. So they may be testy. They may be thirsty. They may fear their enemies. And like Moses with his staff, they might get tired But they are all those things as children. Still my son, still my daughter. That's why I love our call to worship this morning from Isaiah 49. You know, could a a mother who feeds their child forget that their child needs food? And the Lord says, even if it was possible for a mother to forget her hungry child, I will not forget you. So as we come to the Lord in Exodus 17 with our our spiritual hanger, our thirst, our hunger, our need, our fear, let's let that in Jesus Christ be what drives us. I will never leave you or forsake you. In fact, I will help you. I will help you in your wilderness. We see that in at least three ways in our text. First, that God quenches our thirst. Second, that he defeats our enemies. And lastly, that he does it again and again and again and again. And that's good news. So first of all, in the first story, we see that God quenches our thirst. He's a good shepherd to provide and protect. He will not terminally dehydrate his hangry children. We see Psalm 23 in action right here. They're thirsty, they're needy, and and he's going to be a good shepherd so that they can know at the end of the day that they lack nothing, that even if they're going through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord will use his rod and his staff to comfort them. Now, this is good for the Israelites because we find them here, of course, very exposed. You sort of need water in the desert. It's really important. 
If you moved to New Mexico, I remember one of the, you know, one time we came to visit Santa Fe when I was growing up, and you know, you walk into a bathroom in the hotel, and there's like a little sign there that says, hi, welcome to Santa Fe. We love water more than you and humans and animals. And so, you know, if you need to flush the toilet, that's okay, but please don't. You know, it's like one of those sorts of things. Like water is sacred and precious. It's gold. And before they were thirsty, everything was great. Did you see the first verse of our text? Everyone moved in stages according to God's command. They were organized. They were orderly, you know, like a little, the German way, you know, very, very organized, very orderly, moving in stages, doing what God commanded. All is well when all is under control. All is well when you think you have it under control. They seem to obey pretty well when they're fed and they're safe. But then they come to their thirst. And this time they're, they're quarreling. The quarreling and the, the bitterness of chapter 16 turns into a serious legal threat against Moses and his leadership. That's why we're told in the text that they were ready to stone Moses. They have brought a legal charge and case against him, and they are at the point of carrying out his execution. In chapter 16, the people complain, you brought the whole assembly out here. It was better in Egypt. It's a little bit more of a general complaint. Here they get very specific in their lawsuit. Not only have you brought us out, Moses, but, but you've brought out the innocents to kill them too. The children, even the livestock, Moses. And what's so sad about what's happening here, I hope you can see this in the text, that they are basically accusing Moses and God of being no different than Pharaoh. Wow. Three months out from the Red Sea? And now they've brought a lawsuit against Moses, basically saying you're on the same level of Pharaoh? You're going to kill the innocents and the livestock? Is God among us or not? And I think as we're kind of awed by that, we should remember that this just shows us how deep sin really goes and how quickly it gets there. Because sin is an issue of the heart. The issue of the heart is we want to be our own gods. So when our back's against the wall with thirst or enemies, we can go here pretty quickly and pretty deeply. It's amazing that in this moment of thirst, rather than turn to God, rather than pray, rather than, you know, than any of their other options. They seem to indicate to us that it would be easier for them to be re-enslaved than to walk through the wilderness in need by faith. And again, how often we do this when the going gets tough. You know, we don't do it perhaps as brazenly or, you know, obviously as Israel. But the tendency of our hearts is to go, okay, God, thanks. Thanks for playing. This is good. I have Sunday, I do, I've got my religion, got my fire insurance. I'll take it from here on this one, okay? I'll take it from here on this one. Thank you. Whatever the need is, whatever the thing that hasn't been satisfied or quenched. So what do you thirst for? The text demands that we ask the question. Here's another way to state it. What, if removed from your life, would result in grumbling. This gets at the deep idolatries in our heart, the things that we use to cope, to self-medicate, to hide, to run, to control. What, if removed, would result in your grumbling? At the same time, can we just admit with Israel, 
That God proves himself faithful time and time again. Every time we try to quench our own thirst on our own terms, it's killing us. Because there isn't enough water or it evaporates or you think it's water, but it ends up being poison. That's why Martin Luther said the following. The sin underneath all our sins. It's not wrong for them to be thirsty. The problem is that they don't trust God to provide. The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent. That we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ. And therefore must take matters into our own hands. The lie underneath the lies, the sin underneath all sins. And so it should amaze us that God's response is not to destroy them, to blot them out, but instead a gracious provision. Moses, who at this point in his life has read every leadership book, he's hired a consultant, he's followed the list, he made a spreadsheet, okay? He's probably going to see a therapist. He's managing by walking around. He's doing all the things. And he is at the end of his rope. He cries out to God, exasperated, what will I do? And God responds, there's nothing you can do. It's always been that way. I have to show up. I have to show up and do something for these people so that they know that only I could do it. And that's why it's a little bit comical that God uses a rock. Is there any drier thing in the desert? I mean, at the very least, maybe try to dig a well or something. Take a long time with the staff. But no, a rock. There is no water in a rock. And yet to show Israel that it is by grace when you are thirsty, when you want to be satisfied, that you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps, God must do it. He says, Moses, go on top of the rock. Use the staff as an extension of my authority. Strike the rock and I'll do the impossible. Water will pull up, pour out. Now in the Old Testament, rocks were a symbol of authority. They were a symbol of royalty on the solid rock I stand. You know, God will put your feet on a rock. A rock cannot be moved. But even as rocks were a symbol of royalty, they were never a symbol of water. And I think, again, the Lord just specializes in surprising us with not only his capability to save, but his reliability to do it. If we would just trust him. If we would trust that God's power extends for you and me into his provision. That whatever wilderness you are in now or will be in, God has not led you there to kill you. He's not led you there to mock you and abandon you and make you feel horrible. He's led you there because he knows if you weren't there, you wouldn't depend on him. And you'd believe the lie of all lies. So we see from the rock that God quenches our thirst. We see in the second story with Amalek that God defeats our enemies. Look, God will not abandon the helpless. Thirst comes from within. You need water, but sometimes you're trusting in the Lord. You're in the wilderness. God's quenching your thirst, but there's enemies outside of you that you can do nothing about. In this case, we learn that God will not abandon the helpless. And just to paint a picture, Israel is really helpless here, you guys. You got Moses. He's about 83 years old, and he's got a stick. Can you imagine Amalek, the king of this tribe? What does he see walking toward him? Jewish warriors. No. These guys have been in Egypt for 400 years. 
Now, they're strong. They're as strong as slaves would be making bricks in Egypt. But they're hungry. They're tired. And for 400 years, they have not been allowed for even a millisecond to train for battle. You think Pharaoh would have allowed that? Never. Now you've got an 83-year-old dude with a stick at the front of the line. You can imagine King Amalek standing there going, ah, I see what we're dealing with. These people are trespassing on my land. They've come into my land grant, and now it's time to take care of business. And he's on his sword, full black leather, two heads on stakes. Blood is dripping down from his robe and his beard with his sword held high. And he sees an 80-year-old dude walk up on a hill with a stick. And he is thinking, this is not going to take long. But guess what? He's not the only one thinking that. The Israelites are thinking that. They're thinking that because they're human beings. And they have eyeballs. And they're looking around at women and children and the tattered clothes of slaves who have been walking around in the wilderness for three months. And they're looking at, you know, great-grandpa with a stick going, what are we going to do? When our enemies, the Amalekites, who are well-rested, who are fed, and who have trained for battle, have come out against us. They are helpless. And the point of this story in the Bible is to remind us that we are too. To remind us that when, our en- when it comes to our enemies, we ultimately can't help ourselves. Have you ever been in a place where you have just known, I can't, I can't do this? I can't fight this battle. I can't win this war. Whether it's in a relationship or at work or financially or whatever, something going on around the world. The enemy is too strong. And the problem isn't your thirst and your hunger. You're well fed. But even being well fed can't get rid of the fear and the anxiety because the the, the noise and the ferocity of the enemy is loud. in a place where all you can do is join Moses and the Israelites and say, God, you have to help us. And in the same way that God gives a gracious provision to their thirst, God shows them that when they are truly helpless and they know it, that is when they are totally equipped. When they are truly helpless and they know it, they are totally equipped. Why? Because again, God shows up and does something in supernatural power He works through ordinary means, of course. Moses, go up on the hill, take the staff, hold it up. Oh, you're tired. Now you need your friends, Aaron and Hur. They're going to help you. And of course, he works through Joshua and the the men. And I'm sure there were some women in there too. I can imagine Miriam, you know, throwing some rocks or hucking her tambourine or I don't know what. The whole community's involved. But God is the one who has to do it. He has to fight for them. He has to do the miracle. He has to remind them and remind you and remind me that in our wilderness, when we come upon our enemies, he's the one who defeats the enemies. And I love that the Lord doesn't leave Moses alone in this. In the story of the water, they're grumbling and they're disunified and now they have a common enemy. Now, by God's grace, they are unified. It got me thinking about the the church If we focus on the things that divide us, we'll be disunified. If we focus on our preferences and our thirst and our hunger, we'll be disunified. But if we focus on Jesus, somehow, miraculously, God can bring us together. Even as I look around this room and think about how different we all are, different parts of town, different backgrounds, 
different ethnicities, different socioeconomic stuff. And yet why we're here because of Jesus. That's what God is doing in and through his people to win this battle. So one pastor said, and I read this week, I love this, the church is not a cruise ship. The church is not a cruise ship where you pay good money to get on that cruise ship and then a couple, you know, professionals on the ship serve you and meet all your needs. No, we need to think of the church as a battleship. As a battleship. Every young soldier, male or female, that gets onto that battleship, they know that they're there not to sit back and get served, but to serve, to work, even if there's a chain of command, regardless of their role, they are there to serve and to help so that that ship can go forth and do the mission it has accomplished. So Jared Wilson puts it this way about the the unified church. The gospel of Jesus, the gospel that saves us from our enemies, it doesn't just make strangers into friends, right? You, You can get that at the local glee club, man. You can get that at your local little, you know, Elk Lodge thing or whatever you do. Strangers into friends. There's no power in that. No, it makes enemies into brothers and sisters. Because the church is created by grace. And when Christ is our God, everything falls into proper orbit around him. Which means we can disagree about a lot of stuff. And we do, let me assure you. And we can still be together for the mission of the love of Jesus. He is exalted above our preferences and affinities. And thus, our motley band of worshipers makes Jesus look very big to a very divided world. I'm sure Amalek and his soldiers could not have even comprehended what God was doing through an old man and a stick and untrained fighters. But that's exactly what God does. God defeats our enemies. And he does it in a way that makes us go, it wasn't me. It was you. Now, finally, to the question, will he do it again? Will he do it again? And the answer is yes. God will prove himself again. The wilderness is hard. Some of you are in it right now. Some of you don't know that you're about to be in it. Some of you have just gotten out. But he is faithful. And if God is faithful, that means those who are hangry and hungry and thirsty and those who are hopeless before enemies they can't overcome are also those who are hopeful. I mean, we should at least ask the question about Exodus 17. Why repeat the story? You know, John preached a great sermon last week on Exodus 16, where they came to a place where they had no water. Well, that's kind of weird when you're the preacher and you go, I guess I'll just re-preach your sermon. They had no water again. Now, why water again? Why war again? We've already been through all the war stuff. Remember the plagues and the Egyptians and then the coming down and descending in the Red Sea? Why go through all this again, Lord? Why put it in your word? It reminds me of that wonderful old song from the 60s. The chorus says, when will they ever learn? Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing. When will they ever learn? And it brings us to the question here, to apply the text to our own lives, what's it all mean if God feels like it needs to be repeated for us in his word? And he loves us, and that's why he's given us his word. Well, it means at least two things. For you, in your thirst, in your hunger, standing before your enemies, in your wilderness, it means at least two things. And the first one is this, it's going to be all right. 
because God has you. It's going to be all right because Israel is my son. That means when you feel the thirst within, when you feel the threat without, when you feel broken inside and then you turn on the news and it's a double whammy, it's going to be all right because God has this. Second thing we need to understand is that God has to be the one to solve our problems. We are not self-made men and women. We cannot fix our own worlds. We cannot be our own gods. We cannot pull up our own bootstraps. Thirst and enemies aren't going anywhere this side of heaven. And so the Lord wants to lead us as children by his grace to understand not only that he's got it, but that he has to be the one to solve our problems. How does this happen? It happens fully and forever in Jesus. He is the water of life. He is the bread of heaven. He is the rock that was struck. He's the one who stretched out his hands for you and his arms never grew tired. He is the true divine warrior king who fights for his people. He is all of the things that Exodus is pointing toward and he is all of those things forever because he's alive. That's how God will accomplish his victory through Jesus. But perhaps most beautifully for us is the why. We want to be winners, but so often we're losers, and we know it. And we're great at heaping shame upon ourselves. Perhaps most amazing is the why. How does God save us? Through Jesus. Why? Because your name is graven on his hands. In Isaiah chapter 49, in our call to worship as we read this morning, God says, I will write my name on, I will write your names on my hand. Here's what this means. As you're in the wilderness, grumbling, thirsting, hungering, fearing, frustrated, and struggling to trust, as you're the slave who imagines themselves a king, God has come down, taken the low place, become a slave, become a servant, given up everything for you through Jesus Christ, his son. He has now become a slave and written your name on his hand in permanent ink, can never be taken away. And I just stand before the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and go, could it be? Could it be that in my wilderness wanderings, I don't need to try harder to not be a slave, but to be a good boy? And instead, God has said, stop, cease striving. Know that I love you. Your name's already written on my hand. I'm the servant. I'm the slave. I will die for you. I will take all your sin, all your brokenness, all your need, all your thirst, all your hunger. I'll nail them to the cross, and then I'll rise from the dead so that even in your hardest times, you're never hopeless. Therefore, when we ask, is God among us or not? We should know that he doesn't respond with anger, Instead, he lifts our eyes to Christ. Yes, God is among us. He's proven it in Jesus, his son. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word to us today and for these two stories. Jesus, thank you as we come to this table that we are reminded that you are the royal rock. You were struck for us. And out of you, Jesus, out of your life, your work, all that you've done, flows for us the water of life so that when we are thirsting and unsatisfied, 
we will know that you will quench that thirst. Jesus, as you bring us to the table, what a great reminder. Because maybe we've had a good week, maybe not. Maybe we've been really thirsty, or maybe this week we haven't felt like we needed you at all. Maybe this week we've had everything in order, and we marched out orderly and perfect and went in stages. Maybe we were just about ready to stone, you know, everybody around us, complaining, fearing, and faithless. None of that, none of us in our week changes what you have offered here by faith. So we come by faith, defeat our enemies, quench our thirst, and we thank you that you do it again and again. For faithfulness isn't what you do, it is who you are. And we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.